Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Maria Viedner from Cambridge Finance and RE Women. Hello. Hello. That's me. That's you. Yes. I'm really pleased to have you on the podcast because I think you're one of the most fascinating people I've ever come across. Yes. As you put it, I am the <laughs> foreigner. <laughs> and uh well we'll talk about that and also you're not a residential surveyor or valuer you are a surveyor do you want to maybe just explain to the to the audience and to the listeners um who you are and what you do sure so yeah as Marin very well pronounced my name is maria vidna i am a surveyor by chance i have started my career in finance really so i studied business administration back in brazil i studied my kind of high school a levels in finland i studied in texas i studied in france always with uh, more of a financial focus business focus and then also did a master's in environmental economics in Vienna. So kind of like real estate was never like during my studies, I never thought of being a surveyor or even like an architect or a planner. It was kind of a, an area unknown to me. So when I came to the UK some 16 years ago, I started working for uh, uh, the Financial Times for FTSE and uh, I was really an equity analyst. So I was doing the FTSE 100, the FTSE 250 with a focus as well on, on the European markets because I speak five different European languages. And, and at some point, I started looking at the fixed income of the, the FTSE indices, the guild series, and because I was doing this kind of like alternative asset for an equity uh, house, uh, which was Putsi, uh, they said, well, you do the, the fixed income side, maybe property, you can do that because property is just like a, you know, it's like a bond. So you, you, you buy, you get the rent, and then there's a residual value at the end. So do that. So that's how I really started getting involved with, uh, with property as such from, from really looking into what property returns were like from really like a very financy perspective. And, and that's how I, I got in, involved into, into property, into real estate. I didn't become a surveyor until um, some three years ago uh, when I got involved more with the RSCS, but always with the, with the aim to look at the built environment, looking from this kind of investment perspective. Now, you see, as a, as a residential valuer from Wales, who's really only really travels the oh, furthest. Are as well? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I've traveled, you know, and I now live south of Milton Keynes. You know, the fact that you've, that you just explained, you know, the countries that you've lived in, the five languages that you speak and what you do, my mind is blown. So, so let me, let me come, let me come back and, and ask you a couple of things. Firstly, when we talk about real estate, 
what does that mean? So sometimes when I, I have to fill out online forms and it's saying, what sector are you in? And as a surveyor, it'll either have construction, professional or real estate. And real estate, I'm never quite sure because real estate, I sometimes think, well, is that a state agency in residential? Do I tick that box or is it, I'm not construction, I don't think, although there's a lot of stuff that crosses over. And then professional just sounds like it's a sweep all of, of everything. What does real estate mean? Because you're not a into the condition of properties, I guess. It's more of just about the numbers and investment. Is that right? No, actually, real estate <laughs> is Americanism. No, okay, it's, it's Americanism <laughs> because there, and that's the whole thing about the built environment and investment in property has become because the, the Americans are very good at uh, making money out of everything and including property, but real estate in this country means property. So if you are working with residential property, with commercial property, as a surveyor, as an architect, you work in real estate. So it's just another way to say property, really. So if you're working with property, then real estate is, is the same thing. The only thing is that I think because it has this connotation of investment, of returns, because really you heard the investors talk about real estate, right? But no, real estate really means property. So if you are a state agent, you are a real estate agent. It's just that they... Yeah. We just yeah, just call it different things. And so, tell me about the work you do at Cambridge Finance because you train people in in real estate. Is that right? Yes. So the work that I do in Cambridge Finance, and let me just start how how the, the idea of Cambridge Finance really came about, is because I've always been an, an analyst, like a, a, looking at investment and what are the returns, what are the risks when people put money into property. So, for example, if you say you're going to buy a shop or you're going to buy even a shopping center, if you're going to buy a house with the purpose of not living there and not using for our own business, but to receive a rent and then sell it at a higher price at some point, then you are investor in real estate, investor in property. So I've always looked at property with this idea of generating income for the person that buys it. And what I have realized is that uh, there are two types of people in this kind of investment game. One are the people that know a lot about property, but know nothing about finance and risk, financial risk. And the other person who knows a lot about finance, but understands nothing about property, the risks in, involved in the in the property markets, or even the building site, or even like what is the conditions and all that could affect the returns on the investment. So this is really how Cambridge Finance came about. And then Cambridge Finance, really the idea is to teach property finance and teach the property people finance and teach the finance people property. So really like bring those two worlds together in a way that they can now start talking because so far it's always been like the bank people, the mortgage people, the investors and the property people doing, you know, the leasing, the letting, the surveying, the the building conditions and so on. So it's, it was really in the valuation as well, which is, is a very important part. Like uh, finance people don't understand how property is valued. And then the property people don't understand how a cash flow works. So really bringing those two 
areas of knowledge together and uh, trying to translate what the commonality of it, because there's a lot of things that are the same, it's just that we call them different. So this is what Cambridge Finance does. Like I do a lot of training, but I also do a lot of consulting. The focus is really, uh, so I started with financial modeling. So I do a lot of spreadsheets, really modeling uh, what are the returns, the rents, the acquisition price, the selling price, the capital expenditure, putting everything to numbers, and then bringing this and teaching this because once you know where the numbers are going, you need to understand what these numbers are. And then this is when you really start thinking of the fundamentals, what drives the returns for your investment. So I do a lot of teaching that, but then very recently I started teaching for the RSCS as well. Uh, in terms of they are, um, so the, the, the portfolio of finance there, uh, is mainly I have created. So the property finance investment, the certificate in property finance and investment, the, the course on real estate finance and investment, the real estate debt course, the real estate financial modeling certificate. So all those courses, uh, I am the one that have created and the one that I'm leading. And this is really what I've been doing on Cambridge Finance so far. And with investors, I still work with them. I help them create their own spreadsheets and to create to investment, to get to, to the investors or get to investment boards and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of work. And I like to still do consulting because I know what's going on in the market as well. There's a lot of surveyors that I know who've diversified into training and coaching and consulting, you know, so still, still keep the, the one-to-one work, portfolio work going, but then also getting into teaching. And obviously, that's a lot of what we do at Blue Box, and it's important to keep your, your hand in. And I guess, you know, I, I've come across a, a few surveyors who actually would benefit from understanding more about the real estate side and how the investment uh, piece works. And you do get surveyors who will be thinking, oh, I love a good spreadsheet. And they will love all the things that you're talking about. And there'll be some surveyors who'll be thinking, uh-uh, I don't want to go anywhere near a spreadsheet. And we do have these surveyors who, you know, I, I think have their surveyor hat on and their valuer hat on, you know, but that you're right. There's a point where the two, the two absolutely come together. Let me ask you about, about your, your career though. And because to start off in Brazil and travel the world sounds ever so exotic and Oh, you brave, have to tell them my brave. parents are Japanese. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. And that I look Chinese. We're, we're ticking all of the diversity boxes here because exactly. <laughs> you've been everywhere. But, but don't you know, say very... that I'm short and a bit overweight, please. That's another <laughs> diversity part. <laughs> oh, we'll tick them all. We'll tick them all. But listen, you know, to, to move around like that is actually quite brave. How did that come about? Because there's very many, lots of people in the UK I know who have never worked abroad and maybe never have any intention to, but also maybe they're thinking that the opportunities are, are limited. But how did that come about to to leave Brazil and to, to end up in so many different countries? Yeah, uh, it started pretty young. I was 16 when I left my house and I went to do a high school in in Finland. I've always been interested in going places. I think especially because my parents are 
migrants themselves. They are from Japan. And then so I always had this idea of getting to know the world. I always thought, because even though I'm Brazilian, I am in Brazil a foreigner as well, because I'm the Japanese there. So I always said, well, I don't really belong here in this country. And then I applied for a scholarship to study. And I think uh, my grades weren't that great because they sent me to Finland. So I think like the people with better grades would go to to England or go to to France or the U.S. And I was like, okay, yeah, I got my <laughs> got a place to work. To they had five scholarships, so one of them was for to Finland. So then at sixteen, I moved to Finland, and it was an just an amazing experience. And and that's when the whole idea of being human, you realize that humans are humans, whatever you are in the world. So it was really, it was an amazing experience. And for me, really, my life is defined as the, the time that I was before Finland and after Finland, because it's uh, at, at this young age, and you think you, and being a teenager, you think you know the world, you think you know, everything that is going on. And then you go to a country that is so different and then you get this culture shock and then you kind of think to yourself, well, people are people. It doesn't matter where they are and it doesn't matter how different they are. Like we are all human at the end of the day. So this was my first experience. And I think once you start with this experience, it it kind of ticks with you because it stays with you because with my friends from from this period that did this exchange program with me, they, they some of them went back to Finland, some are living in other countries. It's it's kind of a, a bug that you get. But uh, but I started very early and then I I went back to Brazil. I did my degree in Brazil, business and administration, and in São Paulo. And then, but in the meantime, I also uh, studied abroad. So as I studied in, in France at uh, HEC in Paris, I also studied in Texas during the period of, of my bachelor's degree. So I was doing all those like exchange programs, like I, I was getting scholarships to study somewhere else. So I studied in Texas in my last year at, in, in Austin. And then there I met my husband, who is Austrian. So I think with him, I came to, I went first to Vienna. I went back to Brazil and finished my degree. And then I went to Vienna and I did the studies in environmental economics there. And I stayed there for two years. Unfortunately, I hated that country. So so it's not all glamorous traveling the world and, and things. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Especially if you don't have money. I think if you have money and then you're just traveling around, yes, but but no. So then um, in Vienna, I stay. Uh, we we lived there for two years, but uh, it was hard for me. I learned German though, which was a good thing. So I do speak German. Well I, was, well, I was about to ask you about you know, had you learned any languages before you left Brazil? Yeah, I'll just go back to the traveling the world, and then I'll, I'll tell you how I learned all the languages. But uh, with with Vienna, and then my husband, he he lived in the UK, so that's the interesting thing because my husband is also he's Austrian, but he was born in Belgium. He lived in Argentina until he was five. Then he lived in in uh, Florida. Until he was 10, and then from 10 to 15, he lived in the UK. And then he became Austrian when he was 15. 
but like he became, but he was born Austrian. So then I moved to the UK after uh, we lived there because that was the country that he left before moving to Austria. So, so that's how I, I ended up here. And then in terms of how I, I learned the languages, I always say that I do speak five languages fluently, but uh, I always say that it's because I'm a hungry person, not like hungry to learn, but it's like pe- people need to understand when I need food. So then it's like, I need to go and and order food and people understand me. So it's because I was living there in those countries. Because, for example, Japanese is not one of those languages that I say I speak fluently, even though it's a language that I have been most exposed since I was born. So I didn't learn the languages theoretically from the books, but because I was living there. And I remember trying every day to learn German, like... Even though I was in Vienna, it's like this this language is so non-economical. Like for you to say, I go to school, it's like three lines. So it was kind of uh, hard. Yeah, well, yeah. Welsh is a bit like that. It's Everything's a bit longer. Oh, the words yes. are backwards. Yeah, yes, I think, I think there's the, quite a commonality between Welsh and German, actually. A lot of people who speak Welsh can speak German really well. Yeah, because Welsh doesn't have vowels as well, right? No. I don't know. Yeah, Welsh is a bit... Yeah. So you moved around, uh, you moved around the world and and studies. What's it like working in a different country in a different language? Because there's one thing being a student, but when you actually have to work and earn a living, how did you find that? Well, my first uh, experience, which was a footsie, it was fantastic because it was actually very international. So if you go to Canary Wharf, it's very international. So when I was working there, it felt like, uh, you know, I was one of the many because the financial industry, uh, they are very diverse. And because I was covering countries like uh, European countries, even South Africa was covered by, by the team I was working at. They appreciate that your knowledge is that your different knowledge is 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 valuable, which is different than if you just work in a, in a very English or British environment that uh, you just deal with the one type of person and your your work is not as exposed internationally as it would have been. So I think that that experience was really good. Then uh, working, I think I worked with um, one. Com- it's always been very diverse. I have to admit, except for. But then property has been, property is is in an industry. And that's why I started the whole idea of real estate women, because it's not as diverse as the financial markets, for example. Mm. So when, I wanted to ask you about that. So, because I think that's how we, we got to know each other through real estate women. And I'd been doing my women in surveying thing. And I think uh, you reconnected on LinkedIn. Rights. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, how did Real Estate Women, RE Women, come about? Real Women came about because after working in this kind of more international environment, more, which it was the financial industry, even though the financial industry is not, you know, like I think at the base where I was working at, it, it is quite diverse. But then as you go up the, the ladder, then it becomes not as diverse. They do have problems. 
But at the bottom, which is where I started, it was was, was pretty, pretty good. But then when I came into the property markets and I was working for a traditional surveying company, it was a bit of a culture shock because then I realized that uh, there was only one type of person that could succeed. And that was the, the white man middle class. And it kind of like put me in the box of you're never going to be like us. You're not going to succeed in this company. And not because you can't, but because you don't look like us. And this kind of like made me very uncomfortable. And because what I do, which is is property finance, which is very specific, people have to hire me for not for what I look. So I was always being the only one, the only woman in mm. the in the teams I was working at. And it feels really isolated. Mm. So what happened is that I reached out to other women, not in my company, because there weren't many companies in, in the same position as I was. And then I reached out to them and it's like, okay, let's discuss, let's whine a little bit about it and, and see if there's any commonality. Yeah, that, that's really similar to my women in surveying experience, actually. Yeah. And a lot of people that I speak to, whether it be due to gender or diversity, is that your career starts off okay and you generally feel comfortable and like, no, there's no issues with, with minorities and, and whatever, there's, there's no issue. And then there's at some point somewhere in your career it just hits you like a wall or you just wake up and smell a coffee one day and realize you're the only woman in the room or the only person of color or the only person who speaks a different language with an accent, you know, and and I hear that lots of people, it's not a problem that all of a sudden either something happens or it just hits you like a a wall and it's like your your eyes are, are opened and it can really then start to to shape things for you. And a lot of people either migrate and leave to leave other companies or withdraw themselves or they get involved and think, no, actually there must be others out there. When I started, I Googled women in surveying and it kept on bringing up sort of one article. I think it was for um, Louise Brooks Smith, who was the first female president of the RICS. And, you know, it just talked about her or talked about Irene Barclay and there wasn't a network. And I was really surprised by that because there are women's groups everywhere for everything. So that's what I did. I reached out to some other women that I knew and, you know, a few of us sort of met up um, at an event and around this sort of one table, I literally had the life cycle of a woman surveyor. You know, when we were talking about, you know, you know, there was those who had just started out. There was someone pregnant. I just had my second child. You know, there was a few of them complaining about the menopause. And there was another lady saying, you know, well, I'm way past it now. And I feel like I've disappeared. And I was one of the first to qualify and the only woman on my degree course, you know. And I just sort of saw this flash before me and think, you know, we've got to pull this together. And so we had... um at the company I was with at the time, I had a bit of an event and got some people together and it was all, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing, you know, but then what do you then do with it? And the problem with starting an organization, and I'd love to hear your story about how that that came about, is that, you know, there's lots of women's groups out there. They take an awful lot of bloody organizing. There's normally membership fee, there's all of those things. And, you know, whilst I'm on governing council, I'm not one for a board or a committee unless I really passionately believe in it, it's it's not my thing. And I actually think there's a lot of power by not being in a group or not being, you know, sort of part of a particular membership because it's much more fluid. And if you're a woman and you're a surveyor, you're part of my gang. 
or our gang, you know, it's absolutely fine. And you can't get rid of that and you just make a stand for it. And that's why after I did the Women in Surveying Summit, you know, which is this sort of series of interviews of just chatting to women about, you know, all sorts of things, is why I didn't set it up as any kind of organisation because there are some brilliant ones like RE Women out there and we don't need any more. But there's something about pulling people together, like Women in Surveying, we've got a Facebook group, we meet up, you know, on Zoom calls regularly and we just chat you know, and it's just, but it's nice to have that commonality. It's a way of giving back and it takes out some of that uh, formality of what we do. But also I am not the only one, only woman surveyor out there. You know, I don't need to, to lead it, but you do need great leadership skills to actually take something like that forward. So tell me about how RE Women came about and how you came to lead that. Yes. It started just like you said, as women surveying, you know, like just a, a, instead of being Facebook, I was on LinkedIn. So we started the group on LinkedIn and uh, it kind of grew and but it grew very organically because the real estate women is I am a volunteer there. Like I, we don't me and Anok, who, who, and now we, we have an, an amazing committee that hopefully knock on wood, we're going to change the world. But it is one of those things that I couldn't stop because it is the network. And then we needed people to stay connected, especially in the area of the more commercial property that uh, it, it tends to be more men. I think residential in residential property, you will see some more women in there. In, in commercial, is not that many. And property finance is even less. But it kind of came up. I started doing those those meetups. And then at some point, they said, like, you know, because we do the meetup, and it's like, it's great to be connected, but how are we going to take this forward? How are we going to have an impact? And they said, well, we need role models. And that's the whole idea of real estate women is that, okay, we're going to give visibility to the woman there. And it doesn't need to be the visibility of the woman that already there. So we don't have only senior women speaking. We have the, the junior, we have the apprentice, we have everybody. And we don't want to have just one type of industry. So it's not only about residential, it's not only about commercial, it's not only about surveying, it's about law, it's about planning, it's about architecture. So we bring together different types of sectors, so to say, of the built environment. So this is how we, we we bring together every everybody and it becomes very interesting because uh, when you go into our events, you always find somebody that is doing something completely different to you. And this is really inspiring. And then our events, when we talk about it, we talk about flexible working, but we also talk about flexible office space. So it's like the diversity of themes. So even though I say, I want to, how does it came about? It is one thing that uh, we need to keep inspiring people to reach the next, their own next level, whatever it is, their next level, what into the, with their lives. So this structure is not, it's, it's not very structured, as I mentioned, because it's a volunteering organization. We have Anok, 
And now we're going to have more people have joined the committee. But it, it does take organization. So one thing that uh, I, I started and I started before my business was the website. So because I could create a website and create a calendar, then it kind of helped. So having those admin skills mm-hmm. made, uh, made the, the, the group go forward. And then there's some amazing people out there that really want to help. And it's really capitalizing on on the goodwill of other people as well, because there's mm-hmm. so many people out there that just great alleys and they want to make a difference and it's a great opportunity to get experience of organizations committee and board experience when you get involved with organizations like re women and and such and that's something particularly women you know don't always get access to in their workplaces i remember a number of years ago way before i i did the women in surveying piece i was involved with women in property uh, which is a great organization. They have a good you know, sort of mentoring scheme. And I was mentored by them some 10, 15 years ago, I think it was. And so I had a go at organizing my own local event. And we went to the Coal Authority in Mansfield. I think it was Mansfield or Derby, Mansfield. And Coal Authority were great. You know, they put on a little talk, talked about the mining, the work that they were doing, uh, really interesting. And out of my 15 people that turned up, there was one woman, <laughs> the rest of them were men. And so it was really, uh, it was a lesson learned for me in terms of how to organize, but also then how to attract people. And also through the women in surveying things that I've done, you know, uh, last year I did a bit of experimenting, okay, what would it be like if I had events, you know, and I, uh, lots of people wanted one in London. I ordered one in London, uh, organized one in London and two people came. Uh, or three people. We organised one in Portsmouth, near Portsmouth. And uh, unfortunately, I had to cancel and couldn't go that day because my, my daughter was poorly. And something like 25, 30 people turned up. You oh, know. So it's your fault. So it's my fault, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, but then what I started to do is whenever I was out travelling, I would just say, hey, I'm here if you want to catch up. And I did that in, in Manchester. I did that in Leeds where we had a few people and that sort of led me to, well, for me and what I want to do is just say I'm available, you know, and if you want to talk, if you want to get in touch, then then do. And and that took a lot of pressure off me from organising a membership and a committee and an organisation. And there's a, a time and a place for that. And they're the right people that can do that. And I wanted to ask you what it's like to be a CEO and, what, and leadership and the leadership skills that you've got. Because I went to a women on boards event a number of years ago. It was the first one I think I'd ever gone to. And there was a lady there and I can't remember. She was, I don't know, she might've been Japanese or Asian. She was a beautiful woman. I remember. She had lovely long hair. Maybe Brazilian Japanese then. Brazilian, yeah, yeah. And I remember um, she stood up and gave her her talk and she said, I lift as I rise. As I progress, I like to bring people through, you know, and support and encourage them. And I remember looking at her and thinking, yeah, I bet you do. That handbag you've got costs about three and a half grand. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I remember thinking, oh, Marion, that's so bitchy. But then I also remember thinking, I feel so far removed from where this glamorous, international, wonderful woman, you know, with a fancy handbag, I just felt the gap between her and me was huge. And, you know, I don't have a three and a half grand handbag, but I'd like to think that I tried to close that gap because... She's absolutely right. We lift as we rise. And there's that saying of, you know, all all ship boats rise with a rising tide. You know, we all, we need to bring other people up. And 
you mentioned role models. And yeah, we don't have a lot of role models, but we do have some. And I think it's really important that our role models are accessible. And one of the things I remember, so I mentioned Louise Brooke Smith, who was the, the first female president of the RICS. And when I did my... A real estate women member? Yeah, yeah. And when I did my virtual summit, she was the first person to email me and just said, well done. And I tell you what, that mm-hmm. gave me the biggest boost ever you know, it was a really difficult time for me in terms of my career and, and where I was. And I didn't know her, you know, didn't know her for Adam, but she took the time to send me a quick email just to say, well done. It's a, you know, it's a good, brave thing to do. And and that kind of thing spurred me on. And similar with Amanda Clack, I think I reached out to her and asked when I was doing the, um, I've got MRICS to FRICS, a little Facebook group to encourage women uh, to get to fellowship. And I asked her, would she do a little quick video just to encourage, you know, some women? And she did. You know, and it took a nothing. But it but those things make a big difference. And it's important as we look forward, you know, to where we want to go and breaking that glass ceiling and all of those things, that we do encourage those behind us and make that gap between your seniority and your fancy handbag with normal people, you know? So I'd like to ask you about you being a CEO, because there's one thing calling yourself a CEO and what that means, and what you've learned through leadership. Yes, uh, there's there's this thing about like you being the CEO and you being a self-employed. Because (laughs) at the end of the day, you know, what I am is self-employed. So there is this huge gap. But I have learned to be a CEO of my company in that the people that come with me, it's, it's now a time that I'm starting to lead more people, to recruit more people. But even at the real estate women, for example, and I think the real estate women, and I urge people to really try to, to do this kind of volunteering jobs as well, is that the leadership that you learn is not a transactional leadership because it is one thing that say, okay, you are doing this for me because you're being paid. You have to do it. Otherwise, we're fired. It's not like this. I depend on people. I depend on goodwill. So it's leading by motivation, by giving people the aim and the the objective and really trying to have a common goal. Because when you lead, you don't lead for only yourself. You lead for a group of people. You lead for something that you believe is, is the better good, is the higher good. And I think that's the only way people can really lead is to say, okay, our target is this. How are we going to do it? And lifting other people as you rise you lift other people it is true but you have to show also like what we discussed as well like this vulnerability because people won't help you if you don't say everything is under control i know everything i know where we're going no we don't know and every day of a life of a a leader or manager ceo cio self-employed Whatever you do, like if you have to make your own decisions, it's not that somebody else makes the decision for you. Every day is different. Every day is a challenge. So what I've learned in terms of leadership is that there is not one day after the other that is the same. So how do you deal with the problems and how do you deal with people's problem? How you deal with money's problem? How you deal is like being there all the time, I think it is, and getting people to to think like you, to make right decisions for you and your business, I think it's very important as well. But you need to have this strategy. You need to have this this bigger good, this common goal. You need to it's put ha- targets. Yeah, it's it's having that it's having that big vision. 
Yeah. You know, it's having, having that vision and you don't necessarily know what all the detail component parts are, but think of it more of a compass of where you want to be. And, you know, that's no difference whether you're, whether you're the CEO of a super duper big company or you're the CEO of your own self-employed company or a voluntary organization. It's having that vision and it's that how you then take people with you. And you can only do that by engaging with them, by collaborating, by empowering people to come on that journey with you, to listening to their ideas, to shape and mold what that vision looks like. Yeah. And I'm going to give an example here, which is really important for us, especially like the real estate women, which is now what uh, we're trying to do with the new committee and as, a, as, as an, an industry as well, is to tackle racism. Mm. So I started a working group to discuss racism, but especially Black racism. So this is one thing. And then the people there in this working group, so we're going to bring out the manifesto uh, pretty soon, but it's, uh, they are amazing people. They are themselves the CEOs of their companies. They are themselves the president, the chairs. They, and, and then we work together, you know, like, so if we have a common goal and if we have, it, it doesn't need to be, you don't need a title to lead. You know, it, it, you need the vision. You need to bring people together, but not uh, in the sense of you want to be like me because look at my handbag, but we want to achieve this together. And that's the way I, I think my leadership works, that let's all come together because I can't do it by myself. You can't do it by myself. We need to come together. And I think this is the main story of my leadership in that uh, how we can fill in all our gaps. That's why diversity is so important. You can't all people think we, like it's, it's being common in our industry, this group thinking, herd thinking. When one person buys, everybody buys. When one person wants to sell, everybody sells. It can't be like this anymore. We need to have more diversity of thinking or like what is going to be next? How are we going to solve this problem now? of the pandemic. Is it going to be forever? We're going to, is it short term, long term? Let's put our thinking together. How is going, how the, the, the built environment, how property, real estate is going to, to come out of it. And I think here having this, this common goal of let's solve this problem together is, is important, but also like everybody that is discussing this issue have different opinions as well. You know, that's really important that pulling people together to have that discussion. And that's one of the things that I found with the Surveyor Hub, and which I know you're part of, and it's been quite an eye-opener for you, I'm sure. Where... <laughs> I love party walls now. <laughs> and a lot of septic tank pictures that seem to I, I love the walls and the leaks and the roofs. <laughs> but you know, we've we've got like a group of we've got a group of people together and we need to learn to have that discussion. Even when we have events, it doesn't always happen because you're there for the CPD and the networking and conversation is usually quite limited or it's not always facilitated. And that's one of be one of been sort of one of the, the big learnings for me with the Survey Hub the Free Community Group that we run is that not just that we've got a diversity of thinking and you know, we've got to have that discussion, but just how we're not very good at talking to each other. It's like a 
a skill that we've lost and it's important that we re-engage it. Now, we do it on the surveyor hub for generally residential surveyors and valuers, although there's a, a few QSs who like to be part of it. And actually, it is quite people international. People from actually. finance as well. People from finance, you know, but we do have people from France and Australia in the group as well and some people from Ireland. And so, you know, we're, we're getting to be international, you know, but we've got to have that conversation. And also RICS has their own platform called RICS Insights, which if surveyors are not a member of, then as RICS members, you can you can join. But we've got to be, we've got to pull together. And the fact is technology allows us to do that now, but it's okay being there, but you've still got to facilitate it and you've still got to, you know, sort of encourage the discussion because it's, I, I still don't think it's familiar to us. And really, you know, with this, this podcast, that's what the podcast is all about just chatting to interesting surveyors and people like you so we can learn a bit more about the life of a surveyor, people's careers, and primarily because most people listen to this podcast when they're walking their dog or driving around in their car. And it's a way of just connecting because the world is very different to what it was not just last year, but over a few years ago. But look, Maria, it's been really, really good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you, Marion. Thanks for the opportunity. You're very welcome. You look after yourself. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com. Bye.